Good evening, noble ones. It's beautiful to sit up here and to look out and see you and feel this noble path that we have and we are traveling together. And it's quite an honor to sit here and look out at all of you and to feel the sincerity of your efforts these days. Not always easy, but leading in the right direction. And tonight I want to talk about the seven factors of awakening. And I'll be talking about half of those factors. And we'll finish that another in another talk, the other half. But these seven factors, to talk to you about them, brings me great delight. Because this is what the Buddha says about them. He says, just as practitioners in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, practitioners, the one who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of wisdom slopes to Nibbana, inclines to Nibbana, tends to Nibbana. There are many places that the Buddha talks about the key aspect of these seven factors in our path. And there's a wonderful uh, sutta where it talks about the Buddha giving a talk on the seven factors. And Moggallana and Sariputra, whose names you may, these these, uh, monastics with him who were quite practiced, during his talk on the seven factors, they became enlightened. I'm not the Buddha. You might be Sariputra, but we'll give it a try. (laughs) So the seven factors, they're all going to sound familiar to you. Mindfulness, sati, is the first one. And then... Dhamma-vichaya, curiosity or investigation. And I'll say quite a bit about that one this evening. So that word will hopefully become familiar to you, the Pali word, Dhamma-vichaya. And then virya or energy, piti, joy, rapture, vasada, tranquility, concentration, samadhi, which we talked about a lot, and upekka equanimity. So these are the seven factors. And an interesting thing about the seven factors is they show up in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You've heard us talking about these foundations of mindfulness. And there's many versions. Uh, Bhikkhu Analyo in particular has studied the different versions of the Satipatthana Sutta as they go to as it went to China and it moved around and coming down through different um, traditions of, the, of uh, Buddhism. 
And the thing that's always consistent in the fourth foundation is the hindrances and the seven factors. These are the two, when you turn your attention in this fourth Dhamma to studying how things arise, the causes and conditions of how your practice progresses, how you move towards freedom, there's always instructions about the hindrances and the seven factors. Really important. So this fourth foundation and the seven factors is what moves our practice beyond being present. It also comes up in the other foundations, but this one is very explicit. It's moving beyond being present, arriving in the moment, uh, being in contact, knowing what's happening. It moves beyond that to seeing how one moment affects the next, seeing conditionality. This is a very important aspect of our practice because it's by seeing how one moment affects the next that we see how clinging arises, as we were talking about with Vedana. We see how the sense of self arises and then dissipates. We can see our way out of suffering. We can see the moments of letting go and how that happens. So this is very important because initially in our practice, and in our practice periods too, the first effort, right, is to try to be present in the present moment. Like that is a major effort to show up here, to be present with what is happening at the six sense gates. And then once we've done that, we've set up the conditions to see how conditions unfold, to be able to see in the tr- into deeply into the truth of this mind, heart, body, and how it interacts with the world. Because when we see clearly, then we see, as I was saying, the rising of suffering and how suffering dissipates. We see that things aren't permanent because we're really tracking moment to moment. We see that the arising of self is a momentary arising due to conditions of greed, aversion, and delusion. And the only way we can see all that is by this precise tracking of one moment into the next. And when we turn, when we bring these seven factors into our practice, they are the support and even instructions for this seeing clearly moment to moment. So the seven factors can be seen in a number of ways. One is as a progression that you start with mindfulness, which you're very familiar with, and you progress through them. And as the practice unfolds, uh, you come to equanimity and all the factors are present and the conditions are set up for awakening. Another way of understanding them along the way that can be very useful is as balancing. 
So it's almost like the, you can view it as a, as a teeter-totter. And in the middle, holding it all up, is mindfulness. And then you have on one side the factors, the arousing factors, as they're called. Curiosity, energy, and joy. And then on the other side, you have the settling factors, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And as you're practicing, you're balancing these different factors. You've always heard that phrase, alert and relaxed. So this is a, that's like a shortcut. That, that phrase is a shortcut for the balancing of these seven factors. So the first one of them, mindfulness, Sally spoke about it a few days ago. You're familiar knowing what you know in the present moment, knowing what is happening right now through the sense, sixth sense gate. What are you aware of right now? What are you noticing? That's the question that we ask ourselves again and again. What am I aware of? What am I aware of? And maybe not the words, but that's that little, okay, now, now. And that's the foundation. And then from there, we move into the second of these, which is a really interesting one, Dhamma Vichaya. And I like to think of this as like, you know, uh, like a we see all these birds soaring around and it's like, in order for the bird to get going, it has to flap its wings. That's a mindfulness. Okay, it's got to get going. And then once it's going, it's soaring. And now it can look around. What can it see from this vantage point of stability, soaring around? What's here? The Buddha talked about this word, Dhammavichaya, as searching, investigation scrutinizing for insight into one's personal conditions and external conditions. So the word dhamma and vichaya, dhamma means the components, the elements of the world. You've heard there's many different uh, ways that that word dhamma and dharma are used, but in this case it's like the, the, all the pieces of the world, all the elements, all the uh, unfolding moments. These are all the dhammas. It's like, here's the everything. And the vichaya is looking closely at it, investigating it, being curious about it. Discrimination. And this discrimination is in a particular way. It's not through mental analyzing of it. That's not what's meant. But it's a way of looking with care and interest and curiosity. Moment to moment, what is here and how is it unfolding? And particularly looking through a Dhamma lens. Longchenpa a Tibetan teacher says, 
If realization does not dawn dawn from within, dry explanations and theoretical understanding will not bring the fruit of awakening. To put it simply, unless we blend our own mind with the Dharma, it is pointless merely to adopt the guise of a practitioner. Blend our own mind with the Dharma. Isn't that an interesting idea? To blend our mind with the Dharma. And I think that's the invitation in this Dhamma Vichaya, to blend your mind and to start seeing what's happening through Dharma eyes. Dharma eyes. What is happening here? To be intimate with it. So this is from a poet, Rosemary Witola Tromer, called Willing. Let me listen. Let me not know what to say. Let me receive the world as it slurs and shrieks, hums and whispers, speaks and bleats. Let me lean ever closer in. There are walls I have built in my ears. There is so much I would rather not hear. Let me listen. Let me receive with wonder. Let all be worthy of note. Let me be witness, eavesdropper, spy. Let me never pretend to be deaf. Let the world slip into me and change me as light changes a room. Let me be silent. Let me listen. And in listening, let me be new. This is this vast, open, intimate listening. Like the, remember the Vitaka Vichara that we talked about, that touching and sensing? That is the doorway to this Dhamma Vichaya. And there's two ways that the Dhamma Vichaya can show up. One is the way I was sort of just now describing that, just really sensing what's happening moment to moment and watching the unfolding that, just kind of with with an open attitude. And the other, well, let me say a little more about that, but noticing what is arising. What's here? Is it in the body? Other sense gate. How did it arise? What came before it? Is it changing? Of course it is. How is it changing? What else is associated with it? What happens when it passes? What's the space left behind? So can you feel how this getting closer starts to unfold a whole other layer of information? Another way that you can describe this Dhamma Vichaya, like another uh, aspect of it, is specifically looking through a Dhamma lens. So the, uh, the one that is often spoken about in the suttas is looking at the five khandas, the five aggregates, the, uh, the different aspects. And someone, I think, will talk about that. If you're not familiar with the aggregates, they'll come back around. But the, the watching the way that we create a sense of self. And the same way, watching it, how it arises and passes. 
And then as I was describing earlier, watching how dukkha, anicca and anatta, arise and pass. And with this attitude of Dhamma-vichaya, this intimate, uh, curious quality, then we get to um, see these different Dhamma, these Dhamma characteristics that we talk about. All of the Satipatthana, when we bring in the Dhamma-vichaya, all the different foundations can have this aspect of unfolding deeper truths, which is what we're looking for. That opportunity. So this quality of Dhamma-vichaya is often very, very useful once we've established this stability of mind. Sometimes do you kind of feel like well, okay, I'm watching my breath, now what? This is the answer. Or you're sitting there watching your breath and you're like, another breath? I am really bored of my breath. That happens. Another step? Really? Another walking period? Whenever that kind of attitude comes up, that is your signal. Oh, What's missing here is curiosity. What's missing is the Dhamma Vichaya. And so when you see that, so then you can turn towards what is happening. And you can either just get in there and be very, very intimate, watching maybe more exactly how a breath arises and how it passes, or maybe bringing in the lens of watching how it changes. Or watching what comes in and distracts you from the breath. Can you feel also how this attitude of Dhamma-vichaya is what turns everything into practice? Because it's less concerned about there being a particular experience or a particular mind state, what the Dhamma Vichaya expresses is an interest in how it unfolds. What can you learn from it? How can your understanding of this mind-body-heart system deepen? And you've all seen this. Like You might watch, you see something Um, like you are doing your walking meditation and step, step, and then there's a bird sound and you recognize hearing. And then there's maybe like a little arising of, of delight. And then you can watch the delight arise and then you can feel it in your body. And then... You can see where there starts to be a leaning and clinging, but then you choose not to go there. And then it sort of subsides. And then there's just some stillness and calm. And then instead you can watch the other time when you went the clinging route. And you start to see 
how it unfolds from a simple thing of just hearing the sound. And we can, this is what we're studying moment after moment here. And you've probably noticed that if you watch this happen, insight arises. Oh, I am the one who, you know, needs to take a shower at this time. I am the one who is planning for this very efficient use of my break. I'm going to get in the shower. Oh, I have to take my laundry down. I need to go for a walk. And you can just watch all that activity of the mind unfolding. And then you can feel the tension in the body coming in. And you can feel the familiarity of that and the clinging to it. And then the maybe not and the releasing of it, and the relaxing, and then the dropping away. And then you find you're still sitting here, and there's no intention to get up, and you can watch that. And that it seemed, it's so simple, but this, in some ways, but this collected mind that you have cultivated allows you to see this and in that in that constant process of seeing where you cling and you let go the dharma unfolds this is from john moffat to look at anything to look at anything If you would know that thing, you must look at it long. To look at this green and say, I have seen spring in these woods, will not do. You must be the thing you see. You must be the dark snakes of stems and ferny plumes of leaves. You must enter into the small silences between the leaves. You must take your time and touch the very peace they issue from. So the second of these factors, energy, virya. And the Buddha was, well, we know the Buddha was no slacker. And he was very, he said, he, he was like, you need to put some effort into this. The most famous of these is the his words when he was dying. Depending on the translation, it might he might have said, "Behold now, bhikkhus, I exhort you: all compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness." Wait, we're not supposed to strive. Maybe there's a different translation. Okay. Uh, Sajato says, conditions fall apart, persist with diligence. Yukuananda mm. Jyoti says, strive on with heedfulness. There's not a lot of slack here for it's like it takes effort. And it's pretty interesting. The most repeated quality in the Buddha's list are energy. 
and right effort. So sometimes it's good to recognize that when you're like, I'm tired. <laughs> this seems like a lot of work. I'm putting in a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's okay. You don't want to exhaust yourself or wither yourself in such a way that the mind um, like kind of exhausts and gives up, sort of like gets... Uh, Mm, just gets sinking, uh, repellent, aversive. That's not useful. But this quality of energy is key. And it's a very important, this Dhamma Vichaya and this energy help balance the concentration. So at this point in the practice, that relaxation that, that comes with the tranquility and the concentration have really been uh, amping up. You've, your mind is so much more collected than when you came in here, even if it sometimes doesn't feel that way. It's okay. You, it is, I promise. Uh, so, but the concentration itself, this collecting of the mind and letting go of distraction and settling down can have a kind of um, very, like it all gets a lot stiller and we're used to so much stimulation. We're used to like lots happening. And so as it gets quieter and quieter and the mind gets stiller and stiller, it's very common for us to get what's called sinking mind, to kind of get, we, it can be almost, it's, it's very pleasant. It's, a sinking mind can be, can be very pleasant, not always, but a kind of little bit of dreaminess, a little bit of, um, oh, that's, it was easy, the bell just rang. I don't know what happened, but the bell rang. <laughs> There's a, a kind of like just disappearing into not really knowing what's happening here. And that happens with when the tranquility and the concentration gets strong, but the Dhamma Vichaya and the energy aren't matching that. So it's not that you want to uh, become less concentrated. You worked really hard to get that concentration. Instead, what you want to do is bring up the energy. Bring up the Dhamma Vichaya. This is from Rumi. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Don't let that concentration unbalanced lull you into a sleepiness. Balance it. Bring in this energy. And the energy you probably everybody has noticed that the energy 
like in your walking meditation, like it takes some effort to get yourself there to your spot, to sort of bring up the, uh, the motivation to stay there, not go for tea, not get distracted. And so there's energy involved. But then you start to walk, and there's a way then the momentum, the mindfulness carries you. The energy has been put in. And then you can back off a little bit and let it carry you. Now the energy's there, the concentration's there. Uh, the uh, analogies I like to use, being a river person and rowing on rivers and kayaking on rivers a lot, the big trick with running rivers is to work with the water, to paddle hard where you need to, and then let the river take you wherever you can. Whenever the river will do the work, you let the river do it. I think of also, I'm not one of these people, but I look at it, a, a good skier, and I have friends, you look at them, and it's just like it looks completely effortless. And yet you know there's effort in that movement. It's just how much effort to put in has become clear. This is the art of meditation. This is that weaving our way. And then we may find at times we've realized we're, we're over-efforting. We get a headache, there's a tightness. It's like, whoa, back off. You know, I need to go for a walk. I need to open it up. And then other times there might be, oh, bring in a little more effort, bring in the effort to, for the Dhamma Vichaya, Let's get this, uh, let's bring some liveliness here. So this effort, or this energy, it can be energy, strength, courage, persistence, vigor, having constancy. There's different kinds of energy that come in. So... I want to mention a couple because I think it's really helpful. One is using courageous effort or energy. And that's that, like, kind of taking it a little bit towards an edge that is a little bit um, unfamiliar, a little bit of a push, but not over the edge. For instance, like sitting a little longer, like the bell rings and you just go, well, there isn't a big urge to get up. There's not something I have to do. The body's okay. I'll just stay here and see what happens. Or it turns out the end of the day comes and you have more energy. And you're like, I'm always somebody who goes to bed by 10, but there's more energy. Maybe try and see what happens if you do it a little more. Waking up early, coming into the hall. You wake up in the middle of the night and you can't sleep. It's delicious in here at two in the morning. It's so quiet and just perfect. So you can play with that edge of it. 
not a should. This has to come from a curiosity, a willingness, a kind of like, ooh, desire to explore. How would this be? What if I drop my preconceived notions of how it should look and instead lean into it a little? And another way that the energy can show up is more in a, sometimes in our practice, in a perseverance or a constancy. It's like showing up. This is like what we do, like especially when the momentum isn't there as much. It's just the commitment to keep showing up. You know, this is a rough day. And you, all of you have done this many times that it's like, this is a hard day. On this side, we hear that, you know, it's like, oh, yesterday was really hard. And it's like, and so I just followed the schedule and showed up. That is a beautiful perseverance, like a constancy. a a courageous effort in its own way. And it's really important in this that we understand that this art of meditation has a lot of room for experimentation, for trying something, seeing how it works. And then, at least this time, that didn't work. It's like being responsive to the energy here, to what's there, to the Dhamma that's unfolding. But without some idea that you need to get it right. Here's a fun poem from the same poet, Rosemary Watula Trummer. No slam dunk, but every day a second chance as if all of life before has been one big shot. And today, I get to try again. Get to forgive, get to be kind, get to let go, be open, be gentle with myself. Get to learn, unlearn, play again. I think of Michael Jordan, and though I know nothing of basketball, I know he missed more than 9,000 shots and lost nearly 300 games, and missed the winning shot 26 times. I know Michael Jordan was named by the NBA as the greatest player of all time. Every morning, though I can't dribble or shoot any more than I can flap my arms and fly, I step onto the court of the new day and let myself take the next shot and miss, and take the next shot again every day a new foul. Every day I want to argue with the ref. Every day I realize it does no good to argue. At the end of the day, I see how I am the basket, the ball, the bounce, the pass, the MVP, the sub, the booing, the cheers. I am the one who keeps score, and I am the one who marvels when, sweet miracle, the score is reset to zero. And I'm given another chance. How is it to make the winning shot? Isn't it great that there's so many meditation periods in the day? (laughs) 
It's so many chances. <laughs> and as this was pointing out, the energy gets hijacked if the, if we start pinning on a if we start pinning our objective on a goal. There's no faster way to sap out the Dhammavichaya, to sap out the energy than to try to get somewhere. And we all do it over and over again, try to adjust with the idea that this will make me get somewhere. And so that is one of the key things that we get to see as we work with this Dhammavichaya and the energy. See every place where we're trying not just to put in effort to be present, to be here, to see clearly, but to get somewhere else. That moment of letting go, you've all experienced, we do it again and again and again. It's the most important thing we let go of over and over and over again. This is also from the Buddha. He's talking to Sona, and he says, in the same way, Sona, over-aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Overly slack persistence leads to laziness. Thus, you should determine the right pitch for your persistence. Attune the pitch of the faculties and there pick up your theme. And this was the, about the Lear. Uh, uh, James was talking about this right effort earlier. And energy, this virya, leads, sets up the conditions. Energy leads to right, wise effort. So we have to invoke the energy, and then from that flows the balanced and steady and wise effort. It's where the energy is paired with the wisdom, as you were hearing with the four right efforts that James spoke about. So I want to speak now about the third, uh, well, it's actually the fourth, mindfulness, but the third of the arousing factors, which is PT. And it's sometimes translated as rapture, sometimes as joy. And it's a very interesting quality. It's, um, it's very much of the body, it's experienced in the body. It's, it's a product of concentration as well as of energy. And it's understood to arise when the hindrances abate. So mindfulness, you can have mindfulness and the hindrances, like you're turning towards the hindrances, you're aware of them, but you're mindful of them. You can have dhamma-vichaya and in investigating of the hindrances. And you can arouse energy to meet and let go and balance in such a way that the hindrances fall away. And then when they do, you come to this place where the hindrances are not present. And pamoja, or gladness, arises when the hindrances abate. Isn't that wonderful when it happens? I know everybody here has had it happen. It may have felt almost so fleeting you missed it, 
but it's there, I promise. And as those hindrances, those moments of pomoja, of gladness, that it came out in the talk also with James of the non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, when that drops away, this natural gladness that arises. And from that gladness, the piti, the rapture or rapt attention arises. And this is a joy that is not dependent on sense pleasures. It's different than that kind of joy. It may arise, it may be sparked by that, but it's not dependent on it. And PT is very much a body experience And sometimes it can be, that's why I say this one's a little interesting, sometimes it can be blissful, rapturous, sometimes it can be a little strange, sometimes even somewhat uncomfortable. And it it can show up as a bubbliness in the body, tingling, surges, sometimes energetic body releases. Um... Like you know, there's descriptions in the suttas of sort of raining energy, rising energy. It also can show up as a weird proprioception. So, like you might be sitting there, and it's like all of a sudden it feels like your legs, not like, are really, really far away. Like things are kind of warped in a strange way. There's some way that the concentration just starts affecting our system. It's like there's, with the dropping away of the hindrances and the collecting of the mind, our bodies are opening up, energetically opening up, and there's a a shift, shifts occur, energetic shifts. The body, this is not all happening like, in your head or in your knowing. The body is a participant. And concentration has an impact on the body. The collecting of the energy, the unworldly joy arising, the pomoji, it affects the body. And for everybody, it's different. Some people, it's really wonderful. Some people, it's like, what's happening? This is uncomfortable. I remember once sitting on a cushion and started shaking so bad that I like knocked myself off the cushion and fell on the floor from my body shaking. It was like, I never had any idea what that was. I never, it never happened again. It was just this weird phenomena of my body that happened and then it was done. I haven't heard that particular one from somebody else, but I hear all sorts of different ones that come up. And you don't need to be afraid of it. These are just things that happen as the body adjusts, makes space. The, um, The Tibetan Buddhist tradition has a way of talking about it. They talk about these energy, the body has, uh, energy currents in it. And there's, they're nadis, is the word, N-A-D-I-S, nadis. 
And as we meditate, the nadis, the tangles in the nadis straighten out and allow our energy to move more fluidly through the body. So when, if this happens to you, it doesn't happen to everybody, it might just, let me say, it could, the PT could just show up as a, as a lightness. It could just like be your body feels lighter. And there's a kind of ease in the body. Or it might just be the body becomes relaxed. And an openness is here. Sometimes you might feel it, maybe you've had this, when like walking, all of a sudden like walking meditation feels really different. You're not sure quite why it's different, but there's somehow it's just like lighter or the contact with the ground is different or the space around you is different. I'm naming all these different things not to create wanting, um, but to say that all of these are within the range of the arising of PT. And the important thing about the PT is not to get sidetracked by it, to not start thinking that this is what you've been waiting for that this is the big deal. And there's a funny thing about PT that I really want to name, which is that PT often has this feeling that something is about to happen. Has anybody had that feeling? Like, I'm right on the edge. Something is about to happen. That's PT. That's, that's this energy arising. Don't be fooled. Nothing is about to happen. I spent two weeks once. I'm, I'm explaining all this so that you don't have to do this. I spent two weeks. I, it was my first experience with PT. And I just had all this energy in my body. And it was like swirling colors. And just, it was very cool. And it felt like something was about to happen. And I spent two weeks watching swirling energy in my body. Nothing ever happened. And at the end of two weeks, all I'd done was watch swirling energy in my body. Was not useful. So what do you do? You keep going with your practice. You let this be just another thing that arises, but you don't get caught and start clinging to that. So you can continue with your walking meditation, with paying attention to the steps, with the breath. And it, there's nothing wrong if it's pleasant, then let yourself enjoy it. If it's unpleasant, don't worry about it. It'll come and it'll go. You don't need to do anything. It is, when left alone, it is onward leading. If you turn and get overly involved, it is not onward leading. When it's onward leading, the PT leads towards calm. You may have even noticed this if you had the experience of this energy arising 
and then it calms down. And that's the natural progression towards the other of the uh, seven factors. So I want to say something sort of to bring this together that the way we approach what happens through the day, when we bring these qualities of the seven factors in, it affects how we move through the day. Like when you go to eat a meal, you can eat a meal as uh, wonderful delight in sensual pleasure. There's not that much of that going on. So if you do that, enjoy it immensely and, and uh, don't feel bad about that. But there is another option, which is this bringing in the quality of these factors of the Dhamma Vichaya and the energy, and then seeing if the Pomoji, the delight, arises. And to do, so in doing that, you would be having this clear moment-to-moment interest in what is happening. And you might just be very intimate with the moment and watching how, oh, reaching, pulling, okay, taste, thought arising, and you're just being very intimate, oh, wanting arising. Or you might have a particular lens, watching the impermanence of the moment. Or bringing in the lens of the arising of the sense of self. Anushka talked about this quite a bit a couple nights ago. I think it was a couple nights ago. So can you feel how these qualities, you've already been engaging in them, and what they're doing is creating the conditions for insight to arise. We call this insight meditation. The seven factors are the factors that create the pasana bhavana, meditation that sees in insight, to see into the way things are. They say that um, insight happens by accident, but meditation makes us accident prone. The seven factors are what really creates the conditions for the insights to unfold. I want to read you a I'm going to read you this instead, because this actually applies. This is from Mary Oliver, called Breakage. I go down to the edge of the sea, how everything shines in the morning light, the cusp of the whelk, the broken cupboard of the clam, the opened blue mussels, moon snails, pale pink and barnacle scared and nothing at all whole or shut, 
a tattered split dropped by the gulls onto the gray rocks and all the moisture gone. It's like a schoolhouse of little words. First you figure out what each one means by itself. The jingle, the periwinkle, the scallop full of moonlight. Then you begin slowly to read the whole story. And this is our practice. To look carefully and to slowly put the story together. To understand the truth of how things are. For it is the truth that sets us free. Deeply understanding the world releases us from the fear of the world from the aversion of the world, from the confusion. Let's sit together for a moment. Just as practitioners in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever go together to the peak, slope to the peak, join to the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, practitioners, the one who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of wisdom slopes to Nibbana, inclines to Nibbana, tends to Nibbana.
Thank you for your kind attention to hearing the Dhamma this evening. Enjoy your walking period. We'll see you at the next session. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.